We're going to read tonight from the book of Revelation. We're going to continue uh, our series in Revelation. We're reading this evening from uh, Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. Uh, if you've got a pew Bible this evening, that'll be found on page 1,239, page 1,239. Please do follow along with us. And then in a little while, Nigel is going to come and preach this passage to us. So Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9 is God's word to us this evening. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And when the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them, and the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to earth. And the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, and when he opened the abyss, smoke arose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. And the sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or, the pl or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And during those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were 
They wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million, and I heard their number. The horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouth, mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. And the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflicted injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Amen. And we thank God for His Word. Please do keep that portion of Scripture open as Nigel will open it to us in a little while. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 8 and 9, these two intriguing chapters. If you're here for the first time and you've stumbled across Hill Street and you've walked in and said, wonder what's going on in here, and you've heard us read from Revelation 8 and 9, I'm surprised you're still here, but it's great that you're here. These are complicated chapters that that immediately raise all sorts of questions for us. I think there's so much treasure here for us to Uh, find and and, uh, revel in uh, this evening. What's going on in the world? Instability in the Middle East, maneuverings of Russia, the resurgence of the Communist Party in China, the unpredictability of North Korea, the rise of secular liberalism in the West, the uncertainty of Brexit in the European Union. What about nature, the storms that there are, the volcanoes that blow up now and again, the plastic that seems to be swamping the oceans. What's going on in the world? I'm sure there are questions that you find yourself asking along those lines from time to time whenever you see the headlines. And when the Bible doesn't, while the Bible doesn't speak directly to any of those situations, nor does it leave us in the dark when it comes to us understanding the big themes of what is happening in the world in which we live. 
And one of the things that it tells us is that this is a world that is already under judgment. That, that's not something that's usually in our heads front and center, but it's, it's true. We often think of judgment as something that's coming in the future. And it is, of course, it's out there. But it is already happening here and now. Romans 1 and 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So it is then, but it's also now, it is a already and not yet. There's a, a great a little phrase that, that we need to think about as we think about what the Bible tells us about the future. There's lots of things that happen already, but not yet at the same time. And Revelation speaks into that. God is both at this time judging the earth and rescuing his people. Now, we've been looking at this book of Revelation now for some time during the evenings. If you've just come into it, it's going to be a little bit hard to pick up uh, some of the things that we've been seeing. But we've been seeing that, that, that Revelation is all structured around the number seven. And, and th- there's been the, the breaking of seven seals in which Revelation is telling us some of the great themes that are going on in this world between the first coming of Christ, or at least the ascension of Christ, and his return. That's the time in which we live. It's the time of which most of Revelation speaks in the way that we're understanding it uh, tonight and during these evenings. And, and what happens is that like the action replay in the football game or in the rugby match, we, we see clips of, of that period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming played again and again. We see, for example, the seven seals. There's a clip of that period. Then we see the seven uh, trumpets. That's what we're going on to look at tonight. Eventually, we'll see the seven bowls. And, and, and their action replays broadly of that same uh, theme, looking at, looking at different themes of, the, of that same period. And they say something about what is happening in our world. So tonight we're we're looking at the last of the seven seals and going into the beginning of the trumpets. That's what we're we're doing. And and we're answering this question again. We've looked at this before, but what is happening in our world? Four things we're going to see tonight. Four very simple things. Here they are. Prayer is answered. Judgment is dealt. Sin is consuming. Repentance is ignored. Prayer is answered. Judgment being dealt. Sin is consuming, and repentance is ignored. Now, let's say, that's not all that's happening in our world. We've already said that God is also building his church. He's gathering his people. We're praying for that this week in Queen's CU. But, but this is the backdrop, or at least part even, just part of the backdrop against which God is building his church and protecting his people. And we didn't know about this backdrop. We need to know what is going on. As we have worked through the seven seals, we have seen that the things that are happening upon the earth get more and more intense. By the end of the sixth seal, it's just at the point before which Christ arrives, people are, the Lord is coming and people are crying out for the hills to fall on them and so on. And so we get to the seventh seal and we expect, well, this is going to be it. Big climax coming up here. The end has come, we imagine, but then we are surprised. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that brings us to our, our first point. 
prayers are being answered. Prayer is answered. So, so th- there's been so much activity in the preceding verses. If you've been here before, you'll, you'll know that. It seems very odd that we get to this silence, but it indicates a couple of things. It, it indicates, in the first sense, a, a great sense of suspense. What's going to happen next? Great activity, but what's going to happen next? Some of you have been at a great stadium for a rugby match. You know, you've been in the Aviva, and there comes that time where the the crucial penalty or a conversion, and 50,000 people go quiet. It's the most amazing thing. And, and they hold their breath. It's just electric. And, and here you see, we've got this unnumbered multitude falling silent, as if to say, what's going to happen next? So there's a building of suspense, but there's another purpose to the silence, it seems, and that is that, that God wants to draw our attention and the attention of heaven to the prayers of his people. Because the seven trumpets are introduced in verse 2, and before the first trumpet is blown, another angel comes before the altar. And it's a scene reminiscent of the tabernacle in the temple. There's both a, an altar for sacrifice and an altar for incense. And in, in Revelation, these are drawn together. There's one altar before the throne. And the angel holds up a censer. You know what a censer is? It's that sort of big thing that, that burns incense. And it's mixed. The smoke goes up, mixed with the prayers of the saints before God. And it would seem that, that the part of the reason for this silence is so that the prayers of the saints will be heard. Not that God needs us to be quiet in order that he would hear the prayers of the saints, of course not, but that he would show us by this picture that he pays attention to the prayers of the saints. Uh, old Scottish minister, Eric Alexander. Noah Lignew loves to quote this story where, where he, he talks about this and he says, it's as if he's saying, hush, I can hear one of my children pray. And, and then the angel takes the censer and, and hurls it to the earth and there begins this process of the blowing of the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are largely about the judgments of God upon the earth. Now, especially upon the peoples who have rejected the Lord, and we're going to look at more closely at that in, in a moment. But, but you see what this picture says to us. The judgments of, the, of, of, the, of God, the, the actions of God in the world are tied up with the prayers of the saints. The people pray, and God acts, and he acts especially to vindicate his people, to vindicate his church. So the great movements of history are in some ways a response to the prayers of the saints. Do you remember where you were when the Berlin Wall fell? Some of you weren't born. It was in the 9th of April, 1989. I was a student in Aberdeen. I remember it really clearly. It symbolized the end of the Cold War, marked a crucial milestone in the decline of communism as a world power and influence. And students, maybe some of you, will write essays today on the factors that led to the, the end of the Cold War, to the, the breakup of, of the Soviet Russia and so on. 
this political reason, that figure who made this decision and that decision, those alignments of circumstances. You'll have all your bullet points for your, your perfect answer. And all of those factors are true, of course. But also, why did the Berlin Wall fall? Because God was at work. And also, why did the Berlin Wall fall? Because God's people prayed. Some of you prayed for the suffering church behind the Iron Curtain. Some of you sat in church here in the 80s when John Garvin and then when Drew Moore prayed for the suffering church behind the Iron Curtain. And you sat here in these pews and you said, Amen, Lord. And maybe you didn't think much of it. Drew or John prayed, remember your church in East Germany and Romania, Russia, China. And God answered your prayers. We prayed tonight that God would remember his suffering church in the Middle East and in Central Asia and India and China and and, uh, North Korea. And we said, yes, Lord, amen. Uh, or, or maybe you get a missionary magazine email to you or post it to you and, and you remember to pray for a particular country or missionary. And, and there are times you think, oh, it seems like so little, it uh, doesn't seem to make any difference. But look at the angel hurling the censer to the earth. The history of the world is shaped by the prayers of the saints. Now, here's a thought for you. I, I, I said a few weeks ago that, that amazingly, John has seen us. If we're here tonight and we're Christians, we've already been spotted in heaven. You know the way you're, you're trying to take a wee sneaky afternoon off and somebody says, ah, oh, saw you in Newcastle, you know? Well, you've already been spotted in heaven. John has seen you. It's here in Revelation. You're part of that multitude around the throne. But you know what? Our prayers have already been spotted in heaven. John has seen them ascending before God, being woven into the plan of God to judge and to save. So when you think tonight or tomorrow, need to go to bed. I can spend 15 minutes watching some Netflix, scrolling through Instagram, or praying. Would this help? Prayer is being answered in God's world. The second thing that's happening is that judgment is falling or judgment is is being dealt 
When we looked at the seven seals back in chapters five and six, you might remember that they were structured in a certain way. There were sort of a four and a three structure. There was four horsemen and then four winds. We thought those were the same sort of thing. And then there was the three that followed after that. They were sort of different. And it looks as if there's a four, three structure here as well. We see the first four trumpets. They bring particular judgments that remind us of the plagues of Egypt when heel fell and the Nile turned to blood and all of those sorts of things. Now, what are we to make of these things? Now, some Christians who who think that Revelation largely speaks about the future, that we're not here yet, we don't think that, but some Christians think that Revelation largely speaks about the future, just before the return of Christ. They, They think that these things will happen sort of sequentially and quite literally, at that time, and, and they often speculate as to some of the things that are described here, that they say, well, there must be going to be some sort of meteor shower or, or, or nuclear explosion or whatever. You could understand how some of these things could be read in that sort of broad context. But, but the way that we've been looking at this book, I think the, the right way to do that is to say that this is describing what's happening now in very picturesque language. It's describing what is generally happening between the first and second comings of Christ. And these things are not to be taken literally. Don't forget that, that in, in, uh, at the end of the, the seals, at this uh, seal six, the stars and the moon fall from the sky, and now we're looking at a third of them going. So, so you see, we're coming back again. They're, they're not to be taken literally. These are visual images of great disasters that fall upon the earth. The seals seem to be largely focused upon the effects of, on mankind of conquest and scarcity and war and death. And here it seems that the effects are felt on the earth itself, almost what we might call natural disasters. They are part of the story of God's dealings with the earth, part of the earth's groanings. And they affect everything, the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sky. Nothing is immune with the seals, it was a quarter of things that were destroyed. With the, the, uh, here now, it's, it's a third. With the bowls that come later, it's everything. So it's all sort of ramping up, you see. But at this stage, there's a sort of a limit on the disaster. And what does this say to us? It says that, that we, we live in a world that is being judged by God. We were saying this earlier on. At, at times, we see that in really terrible ways. You turn on the news, and there are great natural disasters, terrible harvests being reaped sometimes as a result of man's rebellious ways, whether through war or pollution or exploitation. And we ought not to be surprised that whenever we turn on our televisions or open our papers, we end up thinking, what a mess the world is in. And don't forget that just like the fall of the Berlin Wall, just because we can understand some of the physical processes that go to lead to that and make that up doesn't mean that God's not involved. He sends the rain, and we understand how the water cycle works. So we live in a world that is already being judged, and the awful things around us are indications of that. We're going to see some of the purpose that God has in that in a moment. What's happening in the world? Prayers are being answered. Judgments are falling. Third thing, sin is consuming. 
So in verse 13, the last three trumpets are introduced. There's an eagle who announces the three woes. This eagle flies high as if to announce to everyone. Everyone can hear him. And and the heavenly creatures, uh, you remember whenever they're around the throne, sing holy, holy, holy about God here. The angel, or the eagle announces, uh, woe, woe, woe. It's the sort of the inverse of that. Holy, 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 perfectly holy. Woe, 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 there is no limit to the woe that is about to fall upon the inhabitants of the earth. Now, who are the inhabitants of the earth? That's Revelation's way of describing those who are not Christians, uh, those who are part of the world that is set against God. The, The counterpart is the church, those who are sealed by God, whose home is in heaven, even if we're still on earth. So so here's the way Revelation thinks of this. You're either one or the other. You're either a citizen of heaven or you're an inhabitant of the earth. You're either righteous or you're wicked. You're either sealed by God or you're marked by the beast. And, And now you see these woes are pronounced upon unbelievers. It looks as if the effects of the first four trumpets, these great disasters, <clears throat> are felt by everybody. But these, or at least this next one, number five, is, is particularly only the experience of the wicked. Remember the plagues in Egypt? We say that these things were sort of modeled around the plagues. Remember the plagues? Some of the plagues seem to, be affected, uh, seem to affect everybody, the Jews, the, the, the Israelites, and the, and the Egyptians, and then at a point in the story, God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So it's really clear who are his people. Well, here's a sort of a similar distinction. And the fifth trumpet, you see, is sounded. Chapter 9, verse 1. And something, how could we say it? Something demonic is released upon the earth. A star falls from heaven to earth. It seems to be Satan, later named as Abaddon or Apollyon. All sorts of details here that are hard to explain. He's given a key to the shaft to the bottomless pit, and out of these come these terrible creatures that are like locusts, but with women's hair. It must have taken them ages to get ready in the mornings, and and, uh, human faces, and, and scorpions' tails, and so on. It's an allusion back to the plague of locusts that's in the prophet Joel. Now, you can imagine that this has given rise to all sorts of fanciful interpretations. You might have heard stories of squadrons of helicopters and machine guns and all sorts of things like that. Now, I think that that's not what this is talking about. These are not meant to be taken literally, but, but they, they represent the, the horror of demonic forces that are at work when? Now. So what are they doing? Well, you see that chapter 9, verse 4 says they are not to harm the earth, nor those sealed by God. In other words, they don't, this particular swarm, as it were, of of demonic forces don't have anything to do with Christians, but they torment the inhabitants of the earth, those who are not Christians. So ask yourself this question, what is it that non-Christians suffer that believers don't? 
some of the commentators suggest, I think they're right, that this refers to the guilt and despair of the unbeliever. Many of us will remember times whenever this was our experience. Maybe some of us feel this now. Christians suffer everything that is common to mankind, but our guilt is paid for, and we are given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so we have hope. But, but that's the only way for guilt to be dealt with. And so it's the only way to have hope. So, so unbelievers don't have that. And there's a torment here. There's a gnawing question, it seems, that says, why am I not right? What will happen to me? And often, people try to suppress that, but it's, it's there. So can you see what, what evil does to people? It, it, it invites us in, but when it has us, it torments us. Satan draws us in, and then he devours us. He prompts people to disbelieve, to choose what he peddles as freedom, and then he devours them with despair. Isn't it true that there's such a deep despair within our world? An ache in the heart of society that just cannot seem to be healed part of the social ills that are all around us are a result of people trying to silence that ache. They try to drink it better or drug it better or entertain it better or indulge it better. And all the time, there is a deepening despair so that increasing numbers of people just are saying, what is the point even of life itself? As one writer said, the devil rewards loyal subjects with cruel torture. In Proverbs, the Bible says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. You ever felt like that? You see, some people laugh and joke about the devil as if he's going to be a mate. Oh, I'd rather, rather hang out with him than that Christian God. Doesn't seem any fun at all. But the evil one is the one who devours and destroys. Now let's be honest. Some of us, whenever we think about guilt and despair, we are Christians. But we think, do you know what? That sounds like me. All too often I'm crippled by guilt and beset by despair. Now that shouldn't be surprising to us because this is the vocabulary of the evil one and he is called the accuser of the brethren. So this is what he does with us. He, he, he has the, the, the right, the power to do that with the unbeliever but he tries to do it with the believer as well. 
But he doesn't have a right to do it with us, we're Christians here tonight, because our guilt has been taken away and our despair has been overthrown by hope. The greatest gift, perhaps, that we could get from this word tonight is to really believe that. It's a beautiful picture that's always been really very precious to me, actually, is is that in in Zechariah, um, here we are, Zechariah uh, chapter 3. If you want to flick over to it in your Bible, page 951, uh, remember this and and, and look back at it. It's one of those things that may be personally really, really helpful for you. It's it's a picture, a sort of a vision that Zechariah has of Joshua the high priest. This is a much later time than Joshua and Moses and so on. It's a different Joshua. He's the high priest. If you've got a, a pew Bible, it's page 951. Sorry, I should have said that earlier. Page 951, Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, page 951. I'm just going to read four or five verses from this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a man, is this not man, sorry, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So here's Joshua in his grubby outfit, Satan accusing him. How can you stand before God? Look at the sight of you. God rebukes Satan and commands that Joshua would be appropriately dressed. And do you know if you read on in that passage, Satan does not say another word. He's nothing more to say. Why? Because Joshua's guilt has been dealt with and his despair has been replaced by hope. If you're a Christian here tonight, that's happened to you. Sin is consuming, but not God's people not God's people. Last thing, repentance is avoided. What's going on in the world? Prayer is being answered. Judgment is being dealt. Sin is consuming. And repentance is being ignored. Now, the sixth trumpet is obviously getting near to the climax, to the final end. And and here we see, we don't have time to go into all the details of this tonight, but a sort of another demonic army coming from the Euphrates. And and the the pictures are very strange. 200 million fire-breathing horses and riders with snakes' tails and so on. And, and, And for Israel, if you think of what it was like to live in Israel, well, if you looked um, east towards the Euphrates, beyond the Euphrates was Nineveh and the Assyrians, one of Israel's great enemies. So, so they were used to trouble coming from the Euphrates. Rome was the same. That Rome, that, the Euphrates sort of formed the eastern border of the empire. And, and the Parthians, we've sometimes heard about the Parthians, they came belting in across the Euphrates and 
gave Rome a lot of trouble. So they were used to trouble coming from the Euphrates as well. So here's a picture, it would seem, of, of as one person said, the pent-up venom of the evil one released upon the earth. In an even greater measure than in trumpet five, vast numbers of people now are not only tormented, they are slain. It's an indication of the evil behind so many of the terrible events of our day. Now, lots that we could say about that, but, but let's look down at the bottom of chapter nine at verse 20. The, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So you see what happens? There's great turmoil upon the earth. God allows this great upheaval in the, in the fabric of the very planet. He allows all of this demonic activity that would devour mankind. And what do people do when they are faced with such awfulness and evil? Well, they, they carry on denying God and serving themselves and the gods that they have made. They carry on with their evil practices. This little list of sins in verse 21 is just a, a sample set of sins, I think. So do you see that even in these great turmoils and judgments and, and upsets in the history of the world, there is an appeal from God to people in them that they would repent, that they would turn. It's as if God says something like this. Did you see that earthquake? Did you see that conquest? Did you turn on your television and see those pictures of famine? Look at how fragile your life is. You, you live as if you're in control, but you're not. You live as if life will go on forever, but it will not. When the mountains quake and, and death is all around, can't you see how vulnerable you are? Look how swiftly you can be swept away. Will you not turn? Jesus said something very like this, actually. In Luke chapter 13, some people uh, presented to him, they, they raised with him the, the, the news of a great atrocity that Pilate had committed. We don't really know what it was. He had mixed their blood with their sacrifices. Presumably, he had killed some worshipers or had them killed. And, and, and they, they, they raised this with Jesus and said, well, what about these people? What had they done wrong? And Jesus said, they were no worse than you, and, and the same will happen to you unless you repent and perish. And, and then he added in the example of those who killed when a tower, the Tower of Siloam, it fell on them. So, so here's a natural disaster. There's an atrocity, Pilate's atrocity, Tower of Siloam, natural disaster. What should we think? Jesus is saying, you should think that life is fragile. Am I ready? I must turn to God in repentance. So you see, that is the warning that is written in the awful events of the headlines. It is the, 
the news of a world in trouble, of people that are in trouble. Judgment is coming. It's already here. What's going on in our world? Prayer answered. Judgment dealt. Sin consuming. Repentance largely ignored. Not always. What's our takeaway from this tonight? Are you ever tempted? Are you ever tempted to think of faith as a little thing? Do you know what? That the 90% of my energy and my life is all about my job and my family and my, my hobby and, and, and my holiday and all of these things. I, oh, yes, I've got faith in Christ as well. It's reassuring. Good to have in your back pocket. Pull it out now and again. I think this tells us that this is the main storyline of the world. And therefore, this is what ultimately matters more than anything. I suppose it's really what John Piper said, don't, don't waste your life. One writer says, the purposes of the trumpet cycle are to sound alarms, warning the complacent and calling them to repentance and to summon the church to holy spiritual warfare. If this is what's going on in our world, then Christ is our everything. Proclaiming him is urgent. Serving him is precious. Praying to him is crucial. Let's pray together. Lord, these would be bleak and difficult verses did we not know you. We thank you that you are the one who has replaced our guilt with salvation and has replaced our despair with hope. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege of being your children, what we have been rescued from, O Lord. Words fail us to describe. So, Lord, help us to treat you as our everything to follow you, to serve you, to pray to you. And Lord, if, if it is the case that some of us here tonight, we're, we're here and yet we, we think, I don't even know what side of this I'm on. Will you help us as we see our fragility to turn to the one who gave his life that we may turn? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.